Good morning. I recently went with my husband and saw the cinematic masterpiece, Thor 2, Ragnarok. Now, okay, maybe it's not a cinematic, cinematic masterpiece, but it actually was quite entertaining. The premise is that it is a prophecy about the end of the world in which Thor resides. And it got me thinking about how many movies that I have seen recently that are about the end of the world or what happens after <laughs> the end of the world. <coughs> I started to do some research. Before 1950, in the early years of film, only four movies of feature-length size were made about the apocalyptic genre. That is what happens at the end of the world or after the end of the world. The following decade, that number jumped to 12. And then the decade after that, it jumped all the way up to 24. And then in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, we seemed to plateau a bit, where each decade we saw 35 feature-length films made about what happens at the end of the world or after the world ends. But then we get to the 2000s. Between 2000 and 2009, we had 63 films made about what happens at the end of the world. And in the last seven years alone, we have had over 70 films made about what happens when the world ends. If our entertainment reveals anything about what preoccupies us as a culture, I think it's safe to say that the future concerns us all. <coughs> the word apocalypse is actually an English transliteration from the Greek word apocalypse. It means revelation. What's interesting is that for most of us, when we think of the apocalyptic genre, we tend to think of destruction. We tend to think of the zombie movies and the vampire movies and the darkness that spreads across the world. But the reality is, if we were to be more faithful to what it really means, it would be more about movies that reveal the truth about what's occurring. In context, apocalyptic art and literature was always meant to reveal something to the receiver. And more than that, it was found historically and contextually to be more often forthtelling. That is revealing something about the current culture, the current world that people live in, far more than it was to be foretelling. That is to be about revealing something that's going to occur in the future. <clears throat> to say that we are the only generation, though, that is concerned with what is going to happen in the future would be incorrect. After all, it seems that to be human finds itself always concerned with the future. Each generation has tried to find the signs, tried to find the portents, and it's not just limited to Christians. People of all different faiths and people of no faith whatsoever have tried to discern what the future holds what the end may be. The 2012 Mayan calendar, Nostradamus, Y2K, and yet none of them have come true. While it seems that worry about the future is part of who we are, we have to ask ourselves the question, should it be? Should we concern ourselves with what is going to happen? Throughout... <coughs> <clears throat> Throughout history, Christians have found themselves on two sides of the same coin. 
On one side, we have the people who become too obsessed with trying to figure out what and when the end will happen. They take the book of Revelation as a literal primer for what they think is going to happen at the end of the world. They try to read dates and do math. They try to add letters together in words to come up with a time. They look at every modern political leader and party. They look at every state and country that they dislike and perceive as an enemy. And we try to force them then into the book of Revelation. Completely ignoring Matthew 24 when Jesus is incredibly clear when he tells the disciples and the Pharisees, no one will know the time and the day. What comes of this then? Nothing but tragedy and rejection of the gospel. We might laugh at it, we might joke, but in 2011, Harold Camping predicted the end of the world on May 21st. Most of us wrote it off, but there are some people who didn't. In fact, there was a mother in California <coughs> who, upon hearing this, tied both of her teenage daughters to their beds, slit their throats and her own, in an attempt to avoid what she understood to be the coming time of tribulation. A few months later, a man in Taiwan went up to the roof of his apartment building and walked off of it in an attempt to avoid the same thing. In 1977, another prediction had been made, and 40 people committed suicide because someone had said the end of the world was coming. Trying to predict the future is dangerous, and it is a foolish proposition. The flip side of the coin, though, has been for Christians to reject talking at all about what is going to happen. Instead, they focus solely <coughs> on the present. The only problem we run into with this kind of theology, though, is that it tends to lead towards a rather apathetic faith, a rather a faith that has no sense of urgency. Because if there is no future, if there is nothing to hope for, if there's nothing to be a part of in the long term, then why bother? It reduces everything to the here and now. And we've seen the results of this in a church that ignores what's to come. We end up seeing churches that look more like social and community clubs with groups of people who are more concerned with what events are being planned and who's in their small group than they are about living out faithful lives in anticipation of Christ's return. So what do we do? How are we supposed to be people who have a faithful eschatology, a faithful study <clears throat> of the end and what's to come. We have to change the questions, just like our scriptures today remind us. Instead of when, we have to ask where. And instead of what, we ask who. In Luke 17, the Pharisees gather around Jesus. <clears throat> they ask him, when will God's kingdom come? Like us, they want to know the future. They want to have that time so that they can be ready. But instead of answering them, Jesus, Jesus goes a different direction. He tells them, the kingdom will not come with signs that are easily recognizable. In fact, the kingdom is already here. 
This is not new or surprising in the Gospel of Luke. The whole book speaks to a kingdom of God that is already present and active in this world. While we run around looking for big signs for earthquakes or political leaders or signs in the stars, we miss the fact that it is already breaking forth all around us if only we would open our eyes and see. I think we can admit that all too often we miss <clears throat> the kingdom of God because we are too focused on looking at ourselves and the future. You might remember this video. It went viral a number of years ago. It took place in London. And on the TV screen, a black screen appeared. It said, this is an awareness test. The next thing you saw were two groups of basketball players, one wearing white and one wearing black. And you heard a voice ask you to count the number of passes that the team in white made to each other. All of a sudden, both teams start moving in and out and all around each other, and everyone's trying to follow the team in white, and you're counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe nine. And then everything freezes. The voice comes back on, and rather than asking people the number of times it passed, it said, did you notice the moonwalking bear? You see, people had been so distracted, they were so focused on their one objective of counting <coughs> the number of times that the ball passed, they missed the fact that a man in a giant bear suit had moonwalked across the entire screen, and nobody noticed. Sometimes we are so focused on one thing <coughs> that we miss what is happening right in front of us. If the kingdom of God is already present in this world, then we should be looking for ways to be a part of it. We should be aware that it's here. And maybe it'd be helpful here to change our language. Maybe instead of saying the kingdom of God here, we should talk about the reign of God. Because for too many of us, we have confused God's kingdom and our political power. You see, the kingdom of God was not the Roman Empire. The kingdom of God was not the British Empire. And the kingdom of God is not America. The kingdom of God is far bigger and far grander, far more expansive <coughs> than our language can even begin to evoke. God's kingdom is wherever the spirit of God is present, wherever the light of Christ shines through. The kingdom of God is here in Santa Rosa. We saw it when people risked their very lives to help their neighbors who they never met escape towering flames. People who laid down their belongings and went and served in shelters who have done everything they can to help their neighbors. The kingdom of God is found in places like Egypt where Muslim brothers and sisters surround Coptic Christians so that they can worship in safety. The kingdom of God is found in Syria and China and Iraq and Italy. It's found everywhere in the world where people love and care for one another, where they feed the hungry and they care for the poor and the orphaned and the widowed, where they invite the stranger into their home. This is the kingdom of God that is already 
present in our world. <clears throat> Throughout Luke, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he, he speaks of it always in the present. And always in the context of healing and restoration for today in this world, not just in some far-off future. In his incredible book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. <coughs> Lewis records a conversation between Screwtape, the head demon that trains all the other demons, and his rather screw-up of a nephew, Wormwood. There's one conversation in particular that fascinated me. Screwtape and Wormwood are having a conversation, and <coughs> Screwtape says, The humans live in time, but our enemy, that would be God, desires them to live in eternity. He, therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself, to that point in time which they call the present. For the present is the point in time in which time touches eternity. He'd therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, <coughs> either meditating <coughs> on their eternal union with him, or obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, and receiving the present grace. Our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present, with this in view, sometimes we can tempt a human to live in the past. But this is of limited value. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already. So the thought of the future both brings hope and fear. It's also unknown to them, so it makes them think in unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the least like eternity. Nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past, love looks to the present, fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. To be sure, the enemy wants Ben to think of the future too, just so much as is necessary for the planning of acts of justice or charity, which will be their duty tomorrow. He does not want men to give the future their hearts or to place their treasures in it. We do. <coughs> Screwtape gives us a great perspective on why we have a problem when we try to discern the future. Because it removes us from both the present and from eternity. You see, Jesus reminds us in Luke 17 that we need to look to the present, but Revelation 21 reminds us to look to eternity as well. But it reminds us that the eternity we look to is not a what, but a who. In Revelation 21, we are treated to a vision of a beginning, not an ending. We are shown a new heaven and a new earth, one that is reborn and healed. <coughs> If you've read any of the previous 65 books leading up to Revelation, you will know that God is not in the business of destruction and waste. He's in the business of recreation, renewal, and restoration. And we come to this new world with no oceans, not because God hates the ocean, but because in Revelation, the seas are a metaphor for chaos. We come to a place now where chaos has been removed. 
where eternity reigns with peace and order supreme. And into this new peace and this world descends not a new Garden of Eden, but a new city of Jerusalem. I think sometimes a lot of us end up imagining eternity as a precious moments tableau, where we all sit on nice puffy clouds or in some perfect garden. There's a babbling brook and perhaps some elevator music in the background, and everything is calm and peaceful, and we just live these zen-like lives. But that's not what God reveals to us. God reveals to us that eternity is not a garden, it's a city. Not a place of isolation, but a place of community, (coughs) of action, of bustling life. Eternity is not striving for some kind of personal peace. No, we're working towards a communal salvation of all of creation where we live in peace and joy and harmony with one another. Yes, but more importantly, that we live with God. Because the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and all the language, none of it is worth anything without the one who dwells within it. Eternity is not found in a place or a time or the future. Eternity is found in God alone. And in God, in that eternity, we find wholeness and we find peace and we find comfort and we find joy and we find the end of sadness and death. We are remade new in him. When we fail to look to eternity and instead spend our time focused on some kind of imagined apocalyptic future, we find only death and destruction, not healing and redemption. I feel deep sorrow whenever I hear people talking about hoping that the end comes soon so they don't have to deal with this world anymore. When people talk about this world as though it is expendable or that we can trash it because who cares? God is just going to make a new one. There is nothing in eternity or the present that longs for the destruction of this world or its people. Instead, it longs for restoration and healing and rescue. We are not supposed to pray for some imaginary future where all the people that we don't like are forced to endure terrible suffering while we sit safely on the sidelines from afar. We are supposed to work tirelessly every day to spread the good news that God's kingdom is here now, that it is present with us, that it is available and open to all if only they would pause and open their hearts to see it. Today is Christ the King Sunday. It is a day when the church around the world celebrates the reign (coughs) of Jesus. It's a day when we celebrate that no earthly power above Christ and his commands exists, that no government is above the kingdom of God. A day when we celebrate that Christ is both present with us today, yes, but also that he is seated eternally on the throne. That the same Jesus that walked on this earth for 2,000 years ago, who suffered and died and rose again, who preached 
the good news to the poor and the powerless who lifted up the lowly and fed the hungry and welcomed the outcast. That is the same Jesus who is on the throne today and will be on the throne forever. That same Jesus is the one who bids us to follow him daily, to live like him daily, (coughs) (coughs) who calls us to live in the present, not the past or the future, to live a present life in the light of eternity. The study of eschatology or end times can often feel overwhelming and confusing or maybe just flat out boring. When I begin to feel like this, though, I remember what G.K. Chesterton once wrote. He said, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. The book of revelation, the study of things to come, these aren't important because they tell us that there will be pain and suffering in our present life or in the future. We know that. They're important because they remind us that pain and suffering can and will be beaten. Jesus tells the disciples, I am the way and the truth and the light. It is as true then, and it is true today, and it will be in eternity. So let's not waste our time on trying to predict the future. Let us live Christ-like lives today and entrust our future into the hands of the one who holds it into eternity. This is what it means to worship Christ the King, to place our lives in his hands and trust that in his goodness we will be brought through. Amen.